First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Uh, If you have your Bibles today, and I hope that you do, would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. Last week, we started our journey through this letter together. We looked at the first two verses of Ephesians 1 to kind of kick things off. And as I said last week, today and for two weeks after this, uh, we are going to look at verses 3 through 14, uh, which although it might take up quite a bit of space on the page in your Bible, is, believe it or not, just one really long sentence in the original Greek text. It is 202 words long. As the one person put it, the Apostle Paul was so excited uh, as he started out uh, writing this letter and, and praising God for all that he has done for us that he didn't want to even take a break for a period. Uh, he didn't have any time for that. And so he is just trucking along here as one beautiful gospel truth after another comes tumbling out of his spirit-inspired mind through his pen and on to the holy page. Uh, today, we're going to just study the first portion of this magnificent sentence, but let's read all of it uh, as we get started today. Verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. The Word of God says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today uh, for this amazing portion uh, of your word. We pray today, Lord, that you would help us to hear you. Father, you would help us today to humbly receive your word and what it is you want to say to us. Father, that we might trust you. Father, that we might find our identity in you and in what you have done for us in your son, Jesus Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you saw, the series that we're in is called Identity Theft because as we walk through our lives, 
in this broken world, it is so easy for uh, our identity be, to be taken away. It's easy for our identity to be uh, built upon something that it should not be built upon. But the book of Ephesians reminds us that as believers, our identity is unshakable because it is rooted in who we are in Jesus Christ. The beginning of this letter is all about that because this beautiful section of praise that we just read is is about our salvation in Jesus Christ from eternity past to eternity future. And one of the things that is so beautiful in these verses is the way that Paul teaches us about how our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have brought about our salvation. Now it's true that the word Trinity is not used in the New Testament, but the doctrine of the Trinity is found everywhere in the Bible. And it's found, of course, here in Ephesians chapter one. And in fact, the way that we're going to work through these verses over the next three weeks is going to be in Trinitarian fashion. Today, we're looking at verses three through six, which is primarily about the work of God the Father in our salvation. Next week, we'll be looking at verses seven through 12, which is mainly about the work of God the Son in our salvation. And then two weeks from now, we'll look at verses 13 and 14 and talk about the saving work of the Holy Spirit of God. But again, today we're thinking about what God the Father has done in Christ to save us. And first off, in verse three, there are a few uh, preliminary truths, two preliminary truths that we need to keep in mind as we look at the rest of this passage today. Paul writes in verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The first preliminary truth we need to see is actually the end of that verse. God, our Father, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now, it is pretty clear what the theme of verse three is, isn't it? Three three times in that one verse, Paul uses variations of the word blessing. He starts out by saying, blessed be the God. And then he says, who has blessed us. And then he writes with every spiritual blessing. So we are to bless God. We'll talk more about that in a moment because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now the word spiritual there doesn't mean that our blessings are only spiritual and in contrast to physical or material The word spiritual there really means that all of our blessings come from the Holy Spirit. And those blessings include everything, everything that God has given us in this age, everything that God has promised us in the age to come. And Paul writes that all of those spiritual blessings are in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, church, that doesn't mean that all of our blessings are locked away somewhere up in heaven where we have no access to them and cannot experience them until the day that we die or the Lord comes back. No, because if you glance over in chapter two of this letter in verse six, Paul writes that even though physically speaking, our bodies are on the earth, he says that even right now, we as believers are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What that means is these blessings that are in the heavenly places are already ours because we, spiritually speaking, are already there by virtue of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what are those blessings? What are these spiritual blessings? 
Well, some of them are spelled out in the rest of the passage. Right in verses 4 through 14, he tells us what some of those blessings are. They include our election, our adoption as sons and daughters of God. They include our redemption, our forgiveness, the gift of the Holy Spirit, our inheritance that is ours in Christ. Those blessings also include every good gift that comes down from above, from the Father of lights. They include everything good, church, in our lives and in our hearts, everything good in our present and in our past and in our future, every spiritual blessing. And all of those blessings are ours if we are in Jesus Christ. I don't know if you noticed when we read this passage that in almost every verse, you either see the word we or the word us. Now, who is the we? Who is the us? Well, Paul is writing to a group of Christians in the church at Ephesus who have believed in Jesus. And he's saying to them that they're a part of the we, they're a part of the us who along with Paul have believed in Christ. And because they have, all of these blessings are theirs. Well, the truth is church that if, if you have believed in Christ, then you're a part of the we too. And you're a part of the us. And so am I by God's grace and every blessing that he talks about in this passage is yours and it is mine because of his grace. We are so blessed, church, more than we even understand. And so what should be our response to that? Well, that's preliminary truth number two. Our response should be to bless our God and our Father who has blessed us with everything that we have, who has blessed us with everything this passage uh, talks about, in light of all that he's done for us, how could we not bless God? How could we not praise his name, not only today, but every single day uh, that he gives us? As we get down to verses four through six, which is the rest of our passage for today, we need to remember the words of verse three. And we need to remember that really this whole section in the Bible, verses 3 through 14, is all about praising God. That's what Paul is doing. He's praising God and he writes this super duper long run on sentence because he doesn't want to stop praising God. And he doesn't want us to stop praising God either. Now, I know that in these verses, there are some difficult concepts uh, that folks like to debate about. There are concepts in these verses that are hard for us to understand, concepts that we have to wrestle with and, and struggle with. And you know what? That's okay. It's okay to wrestle with some of the things that we read in God's word. It's okay sometimes to be like Jacob and, and to wrestle with God and to say, God, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I'm not going to let you go until I understand what it is that you want to say to me. But, but church, let's not get so hung up on debating what these verses mean that we forget why these verses are in our Bibles. That they are here to help us understand how much we have to praise God about. And we cannot lose sight of that fact. Sometimes I'm afraid we get so buried in the weeds of how salvation works that we forget to praise God for our salvation. And you can take it to the bank. If in the end, wherever your theology is, if in the end, the result of your theology is less praise rising up from your heart to God, then somewhere along the way, you have gone off the rails. And I pray that will never be the case for us, church. We have so much 
to praise God for. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. As we move down to verses four through six, Paul gives us some of the reasons we have to bless and to praise God. First off, he tells us we should praise our God and Father because he has chosen us in Christ. Look with me at verses four and five. Paul writes, just as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Verse five, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. I know that for some believers, the terms that we see in this text, predestination and chosen, uh, can be terms that uh, make us a little bit nervous, terms that put us a little bit on edge. But as one person put it, these words should not make us nervous because they are Bible words. God has given them to us in his word to help us to understand. He's given these uh, to us in his word for our good. The word predestination that's used in verse five literally means to determine beforehand or to decide in advance. And in this case, the subject of what has been decided in advance is our salvation and our adoption as children of God. Now, now to be sure, the word predestination is a very rare word in the pages of Scripture. It only shows up six times in the New Testament. Two of those six times are right here in this text, in verse 5 and in verse 11. But the concept that we see in verse 4, the concept of God's choosing, shows up a whole lot more. The word chose there in verse 4 comes from the Greek word eklego. We get our English word elected or the elect from that word. That's why, by the way, this doctrine of God choosing our salvation in Christ is often referred to as the doctrine of election. It comes from this word. And that verb to elect or to choose shows up 22 times in the New Testament. And the noun form of that word, the chosen or the elect, shows up another 22 times in the New Testament. The Hebrew equivalent of that word, to choose, shows up a whopping 198 times in the Old Testament. What that means is from the very beginning of the Bible, our God is a God who chooses, a God who elects certain people for certain things. As we walk through this passage, I want us to see a few basic principles about election. The first one is what we've just been talking about. Election isn't just taught here in Ephesians chapter 1. Election is taught throughout the Bible. Think with me, if you will, about all the people that God has chosen for different things, different tasks throughout the pages of the Bible. Think about the kings that he chose, King Saul, King David. Think about how God chose certain men to be judges, certain men to be prophets. Most importantly, think about how God chose Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, out of all of the people on the face of the earth, he chose Abraham and he said, through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Most importantly, in the Old Testament, God chose Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel. Remember, they are often referred to as God's chosen people. 
And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, for example, God makes it clear he did not choose Israel because of anything to do with them, but because of his own sovereign decision to love them. Here's what God said to Israel in Deuteronomy 7. He said, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. But it's not just Israel in the Old Testament that were chosen to be God's special people. No, the same thing is said in the New Testament about believers who are a part of the church. Look at what Paul wrote to the believers in the church of Thessalonica. He said, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. As I said, in many places in the New Testament, believers are referred to by the noun, the elect ones or the chosen ones. One example is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Peter writes to, quote, the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. In addition to these examples, there's other verses where even though the word choosing is not used, the concept is certainly there. One example is in Acts chapter 13. It says, now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the words of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Jesus seems to imply the same concept in John chapter 6 when he said this. He said, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up the last day. That last example really relates to the second, second basic truth about election that we need to see because the Bible teaches us that we did not choose Christ and indeed apart from God's drawing of ourselves to him, we could not choose Christ because as it says in Ephesians chapter two, verse one, a passage we're gonna to come to in just a few weeks, we were all dead in our trespasses and in our sins. So again, we did not choose Christ, but rather, we are saved because God chose us in Christ. And this took place before the world was even created. That's what verse four clearly says in our text. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. What a beautiful and really breathtaking truth that is church. Think about the words that we just read. When did God choose you? When did God choose me to be in Christ? It says here that he chose us, that he did that before the foundation of the world. So before the earth was even here, before there was anything else in creation, when the only thing in the universe was God himself, he thought of you and he thought of me and he set his sovereign love upon us. That's a truth that we cannot even believe or make up if the Bible didn't say it. And yet here it is for us in God's word. We cannot miss that in this verse. We also can't miss who is the originator, who is the author of our salvation. It says God chose us, not the other way around. You might remember Jesus said very much the same thing to his disciples in John chapter 15. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit 
should remain. Again, Paul is telling us here in Ephesians 1 that that truth that Jesus said was not just for the 12 disciples, it's also for all of us that we are in Christ because God chose us before the foundation of the world. You know, there's an old hymn uh, that's been in our Baptist hymnal for many, many years. And it talks about this humbling truth about our salvation. The title of the hymn is, My Lord, I Did Not Choose You. Listen to these lyrics. My Lord, I did not choose you, for that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. You took the sin that stained me. You cleansed me, made me new. Of old, you have ordained me that I should live in you. Unless your grace had called me and taught my opening mind, the world would have enthralled me to heavenly glories blind. My heart knows none above you. For your rich grace, I thirst. I know that if I love you, you must have loved me first. And because that's the case, that we are saved because he chose us in him, because he loved us first. That leads us to this truth. Number three, our salvation church is entirely the work of God's grace from the beginning of it to the end of it. There's a phrase in verse five that relates to this. It says, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, listen, according to the good pleasure of his will. Notice that this predestination of us to adoption was done according to the good pleasure of his will. The word good pleasure there can also mean his good purpose. I like how the New American Standard translates it as his kind intention. And so he predestined us to be saved according to his kind intention, according to his will, according to his purpose. But know what it, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that he saved us because of anything having to do with us. Right? And so as I think about my own salvation, it isn't the case that in eternity past, uh, God looked ahead and he saw me and he said, you know, that, uh, that's Scott Wilson. Uh, he's somewhat of a strange duck, uh, but uh, he's, he's a good boy, I suppose, uh, insofar as it goes. And, uh, and so, you know what? I probably should, should save him. Uh, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say he, he looked ahead from eternity past and said, well, you know, he's going to grow up to be a preacher, so I, I better save uh, him. No, no, it doesn't say that. His saving of me had nothing to do with anything that I brought to the table. He saved me because of the kind intention of his will. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 9, using the example of Jacob and Esau, he said, before Jacob and Esau were even born, God chose, God chose Jacob. Before they even lived, before they did anything right or wrong, the text says, God still chose Jacob. According to the Bible, God's saving of us was not because he foresaw something in us that would make us worthy to be saved more than someone else. No, it's simply because in his sovereign purposes that we don't fully understand, he chose to set his love on us. I know that that doesn't answer all of the logical questions that we have about this doctrine and this subject. And you know what? Paul is not trying to answer all of our questions in this passage. But this is something we do need to understand. This is something we do need to accept. God deserves all the glory for our salvation because we contributed nothing to it. 
Salvation is his work from beginning to end, from eternity past to eternity future. Now, with those three basic truths about election in mind, I also need to clearly state this truth. Number four, the doctrine of election does not negate the Bible's teaching about man's responsibility to repent of sin and to believe in Jesus. When it comes to our salvation, the Bible teaches both that God is absolutely sovereign over our salvation from the beginning to the end, and the Bible teaches that every person is responsible to repent of their sin and to believe in what Jesus Christ did for them at the cross. Now, this morning, we happen to be in a passage in the Bible that strongly emphasizes God's sovereignty in our salvation, but we need to understand there are many other passages in the Bible far more than we have time to look at today, that emphasize our responsibility to believe. A moment ago, I referenced Romans chapter 9. If you've read that chapter, you, you know that that is one of the strongest chapters in the whole Bible dealing with the doctrines of election and predestination. But you know, the same person, the Apostle Paul, who wrote Romans chapter 9, wrote the chapter that comes right after it, Romans chapter 10. And in Romans chapter 10, Paul tells us, if you want to be saved, here's what you need to do. He said that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So in Romans chapter 10, the emphasis is on the step of faith that we're called to make to believe in Jesus, to call on the name of the Lord, and to be saved. Of course, we see the same thing in John 3, 16, the most famous verse in all the Bible, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You know, I think it's important that we also understand that even in the passage we're studying today, even in Ephesians chapter 1, in this same passage, Paul talks about that. Go, go back to Ephesians 1 and look at verse 13. Paul writes this. He says, in, whom, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So there Paul writes, you trusted, you heard the word of truth, you believed. And remember that that verse, verse 13 in our Bibles and verses four, five, and six that we're looking at today that talk about how God chose us to be saved in Christ. Listen, they're not just in the same book of the Bible. They're not even just in the same chapter of the Bible. They're literally in the same sentence. And so what does that mean? Well, it means a lot more than we have time to talk about today. I can tell you that. But but it means for sure that we do not need to get off balance in our theology, or we emphasize some aspects of what the Bible teaches about salvation while completely neglecting others. We certainly don't want to get so off base in our theology that we begin to say, well, if God has chosen people from eternity past, uh, that means that uh, we don't need to pray for the lost to be saved. Uh, That means that we don't need to tell anybody about Jesus. Uh, That means that we don't need to invite anybody to trust in the Lord. Uh, That is utter hogwash. Why do I say that? Because of what the Bible says, that the very person who wrote Ephesians 1 and wrote Romans 9, the apostle Paul, he prayed for the lost to be saved. And we have his prayers in the Bible. 
The, the same one, the Apostle Paul, went on missionary trips and suffered incredible things. Why? So that the lost could hear the gospel and be saved. The Apostle Paul, when, when we read his sermons, even in the book of Acts, when he shared the gospel, he gave folks an opportunity to respond, to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And we, church, should do exactly the same thing. While, of course, we believe what Ephesians 1 teaches us, that God has chosen the elect before the foundation of the world, our job, church, is to share the gospel with everyone and to invite everyone to believe, to invite everyone, whosoever will, to believe and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now you say, well, pastor, how, how do you put all these things together? How, how do you put it all in, in a nice box and, and, and help us to, to see it all where it, it all makes perfect sense to us? Listen, this is truth number five. We need to acknowledge this. There, there is great mystery for us in understanding how these truths of salvation work together. You know, a verse that's meant a lot to me over the years, and I highly commend it to you. Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. I do think sometimes there's a tendency for us in certain doctrinal areas to, to kind of want to have all of our doctrine, all of our theology, all buttoned down and all in a nice, neat little row. But sometimes as we wrestle with what the Word of God actually says, there, there are things that are difficult for us to understand. There are things that are mysterious for us. And I guess I would say this to you, church, shouldn't we expect that to be the case? Shouldn't we expect that when we're trying to figure things out with our little three-pound brain, that there might be some things about the infinite God of the universe who is all-wise and all-knowing and all-gracious and all-loving, that we might have a little bit of difficulty completely understanding down here? I think we should expect that. I heard uh, the story about someone who asked their pastor about uh, how this problem works, referring to this problem of how salvation works. And I appreciate how the pastor replied. He said, uh, that's not my problem. That's God's problem. And uh, for God, it's not a problem. <laughs> there, there's a lot of truth in it. You know, for God, it's not a problem. There's some mystery for us, but, but not for God. And, and we need to admit that and accept that. And that's why we also need to remember this next truth, church, which is so hugely important. Church, the Bible's teaching about how God saves us was not given to us to divide us. What we'll see in a moment, it was given to us to strengthen us and to encourage us. That's why it's here in God's word. And yet, sadly, there are many believers, both past and present, who have allowed their differences with regard to how they understand salvation and the way God's grace operates to cause them to literally break fellowship with other believers and to not even be able to do church together with other believers who view things a little bit differently than they do. I think that that is a great tragedy, and I believe it breaks the heart of God. But listen, there are some things that are primary doctrines that not only should we be willing to break fellowship over, we should be willing to die for. The doctrine that salvation is in Christ alone, that, that's a primary doctrine. That, that defines what a Christian is and what a Christian isn't. 
But, but this, that the way that we understand how God's sovereignty on the one hand and how man's responsibility to repent of sin and believe in Jesus, how, how those go together and precisely the way they go together when both of them are taught in the Bible, precisely how many petals of the tulip that, that you have growing in your theological garden, th- this is not a primary doctrine. This is something that believers have been debating for the past 2,000 years. And I'm pretty sure we're going to still be debating it when the Lord comes back. And I'm pretty sure when the Lord comes back, he's going to have a thing or two to teach every single one of us. It is something I believe very strongly. It is something we should be able to disagree about within the same local church and still be able to serve the Lord Jesus side by side. You know, some people are amazed when, when they when I tell them that, that even all of our church's pastors don't line up in precisely the same place with how we view this doctrine. Some people are amazed by that. They say, really? You don't, you don't, you don't all agree about that? And I say, no. And, I, and then I say, and you want to know how many times that's ever caused an issue for our fellowship? Zero. Because we don't allow it to cause an issue with our fellowship. You know, this, this relates back to the series that we just went through, Cancel Culture. This is not something that we need to be canceling each other about in the church. This is an area that we can disagree charitably about. We can talk about the relevant Bible passages with one another. Sometimes we can agree to disagree, and yet we can continue to serve the Lord Jesus side by side. You know, before we move on, one famous example of that that I have always loved is the story of George Whitfield and John Wesley. If you know those two men, you know that they were both just gigantic men in the life and the history of the church that God used in incredible ways. But it was well known that George Whitfield emphasized more of the sovereignty of God when it came to how salvation works, whereas John Wesley leaned the other way, emphasized more free will and human responsibility. And yet, despite their very public disagreement about this issue, one time someone asked George Whitfield if he thought uh, that he would see Wesley in heaven, <laughs> somewhat implying that maybe he won't be in heaven, maybe he's not even saved because he doesn't believe in election like you do. This is what John Whitfield, or excuse me, this is what George Whitfield said in reply. He said, I fear that I won't see him. For he will be so near to the eternal throne and we at such a distance that we should hardly get a sight of him. And what a great example for us. The Bible's teaching on salvation was not given to us to divide us. But instead, church, that God chose us before the foundation of the world should humble us and it should encourage us. And there's so much to say about that, but just understanding that God set his love on us from eternity past before the world was ever here should never cause us to be arrogant. It should never cause us to be proud. It should never cause us to feel like we're a part of some theological elite that has something figured out. No, if that's the way we think, then we have missed the boat on what this doctrine teaches. Rather, it should be deeply humbling to us. And it should cause us to fall down on our face before God and say, God, why in the world would you choose to set your love on me? Not only is it humbling, but it also should be encouraging 
Because Christian, listen, the God who set his love on you in eternity past is never, ever going to let you go. That's what Paul writes to us in Romans 8, right after 828, where he says, all things work together for our good. These are the very next two verses. Paul writes, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. What does that mean? It means, Christian, that you are eternally secure in Jesus Christ. And you know you're eternally secure because what verse 30 says, those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he's going to glorify. We are secure. There is an unbreakable chain of God's sovereign grace that has a hold of your life and it will never, ever let you go. He will finish the good work that he started in you just like he promised. We've seen that God the Father has chosen us in Christ very quickly We need to see this also. He's chosen us in Christ for a gracious purpose. Actually, for several gracious purposes. First off, his gracious purpose is that we would be holy and blameless. You see that there in verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, as one person pointed out, if his intention was one day that we be holy and without blame— What that means is, is that when his grace first started to work in our life, we were unholy and we were blameworthy. And yet his grace has done such a work in us that he now declares us to be holy in Christ. He's progressively making us more and more holy like Christ. And one day he says, we will be completely holy. We will be just like him when we see him. And this is one of the purposes of our election to begin with. Here's another gracious purpose God has, that we would be adopted as his children. You see that in verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. And so when you think about that term predestination, at least here in verse 5, put it in the context of a personal relationship with God, your father. He has predestined you to be adopted as his son or as his daughter. You know, out of all of the images that the Bible gives us to understand salvation, I can't think of any image that's more precious than this one. That our salvation is an adoption. That he has brought us into his very family. Think about that. He didn't just wipe away our sin and say, well, you're forgiven. He didn't just say you're justified. You can now go free as you were. No, he has brought us into his very living room. He has made us his sons and made us his daughters, and he has done that forever. It's just like it says in John 1, to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. I read about a woman named Lisa. Lisa grew up in church, but she was always worried that if she ever, you know, stumbled. Does any of us ever do that? Yep. She ever stumbled that, you know, she wasn't a very good Christian. Sometimes she thought, you know, if I stumble too bad, maybe that means I'm not even a Christian at all. But then she wrote this. She said, quote, the study of adoption in in the Bible has clarified the confusion I once felt. Adoption is a legal procedure which secures a child's identity. There's the name of our series. In a new family. We don't get kicked out of the family because of our behavior. We don't have to worry day to day whether or not we're good enough to be a part of the family. In his infinite kindness, God made us a permanent part of his family. 
Nothing can undo the legal procedure that binds me to Christ. He died to redeem me. I love this. He signed the adoption papers, so to speak, with his blood. Nothing can cancel the work he did for me. I am free free from the fear of falling away. Hallelujah. Can anybody say hallelujah to that as well? And he signed your adoption papers with his own blood. And nothing can pull you away. So he chose us in Christ that we might be holy and blameless. He chose us in Christ that we might be adopted as his sons and his daughters. But as you think about God's saving purpose in your life and in my life, remember that ultimately God's purpose in saving us wasn't even ultimately about us. It was about something even greater. That's what this text says. It was for this purpose. It was for this reason that we should praise the glory of his grace. Look at verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. You know that phrase, the praise of his glory, shows up three times in this passage. It shows up in verse 12, right at the end of when he's talking about the work of the Son in our salvation. It shows up in verse 14, right at the end of talking about the work of the Spirit in salvation. And it shows up here in verse 6 when he's just wrapped up talking about the work of the Father in salvation. To the praise of his glory. But here he adds the word, the glory of his grace. Now there's something glorious, church, about God's grace that he has poured out upon us. Because we are wretched sinners who do not deserve his grace. We do not deserve his mercy. We do not deserve his forgiveness. We do not deserve his adoption as his children, but because of his grace, we have received all of those things. Verse 6 says, we have been accepted in the beloved. The the word accepted there also comes from a word that means to bestow grace on someone, to, to be grace us. That's what he's done. And he says that we've been be graced in the beloved. Who's the beloved? That's a reference to Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I love the way one person put it. It said that we have been swept up. We have been caught up in the eternal love between the father and the son. And as we're in Christ, all of the father's love has been poured out upon us. And once we see that church, what else can we do but praise God for the glory of his grace? Let's pray together. Father, we praise you today as your people in this place for the glory of your grace. We are not worthy of your love. We're not worthy of your grace. And Father, our our breath is taken away when we read these words that before the foundation of the world, you chose us in Christ. Father, we confess we struggle to even understand the fullness of what that means. But we receive it. We read it. We accept it. We believe it. And we thank you for it. We know we're secure in your love and your grace in our lives. Father, I pray even in a few moments as we go from this place that, Father, we would go with hearts full of praise for the glory of your grace. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room that hasn't yet received that grace, hasn't yet trusted your son Jesus in a personal way. Father, I pray today you might work in their heart and draw them to yourself, that, Father, they might receive, they they might believe in your son Jesus and receive that salvation that's only found in his name. Lord, we thank you for being such a good, such a kind father. 
Thank you for adopting us as your sons and your daughters. In Jesus' name we pray.